Thank you for joining us on another edition of the Oregon Lacrosse Podcast. On today's episode, we have current Madlax Oregon director slash founder and Central Catholic head coach, Josh Peck. Josh and I discuss how he found his way from Maryland to Oregon, his time at Johns Hopkins, the recruiting world, lacrosse in Oregon, and much more. Before we get to the interview, the Oregon Lacrosse Podcast is brought to you by Madlax Oregon. Elevate your game this fall with Oregon's premier coaching staff. Register for fall positional clinics or the upcoming Winter Box League at madlaxoregon.com. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Coach Peck. Welcome to another episode of the Oregon Lacrosse Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Marcotte. I'm sitting here with current Madlax Oregon director, founder, and current Central Catholic head coach, Josh Peck. Josh, how you doing? Doing well. Glad to, glad to be here. Um, super excited to have you on our second episode. First episode with Alex Lush was great, but now really looking forward to getting a coach, someone a little older who's been around the lacrosse scene for a while, been in the coaching role. Uh, so looking forward to getting that perspective on the podcast. I think a lot of parents, a lot of players will find a ton of value in that. Yeah, happy to, happy to help. All right, let's start with uh, a little bit of background about yourself. Where are you from and how did you get your start in sure. the world of lacrosse? Sure. Uh, yeah, so I'm from Annapolis, Maryland originally, uh, from a family of five, and uh, I got my start in lacrosse. My fifth grade, going into sixth grade year, my older sister, who is six and a half years older than me, was um, she was the first gen of lacrosse in my family. My dad was a baseball guy, uh, so I grew up around baseball, and through my elementary school years, following my sister around through the high school circuit and the club circuit, uh, I fell in love with the game. My sister was one of the top four commits in the country, so she was... um, she was the trendsetter in our family that set the precedent for the younger generations, for myself and my sister, that just made lacrosse kind of a passion of our family. So that's how I got my kick in lacrosse. Um, high yeah. school days. High school days, yeah. Well, uh, where'd you go to high school? What was high school lacrosse like back when you were growing up? And sure. Go from there. Sure, yeah. So I, I went to a big public school, Broadneck uh, High School. Broadneck is a 6A, 5A, 6A school, um, massive student body, 2,400 kids, great athletic program, great academics. Um, and the I was doing three sports at the time, uh, my freshman, sophomore, junior year, junior year, uh, junior summer was my kind of big recruiting summer. Back then, in those days, there was only blue chip champ camp, um, something that we, we would call Team Chesapeake back in the day, which uh, the top 300 guys from Maryland, it was the, the private lacrosse board, the public lacrosse board, all the coaches that represented them invited the top three players from all their rosters. So you had 300, 350 on the invite list, and it was a weekend worth of tryouts over the summer, a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and the college coaches would cut the roster till you got to a final team, and then that final team would do a weekend long worth of games versus the Canadian U19 team. That was uh, that. I, I had an exceptional champ camp tryout, exceptional champ camp weekend. That's really what propelled all of my college recruiting from my high school experience. Nice. I mean, that's a lot different than you see today with 
club teams, you know, kind of the club era we're living in for lacrosse. So yeah. it's, lot, it's interesting when you kind of have high school coaches vouching and that's the only way you can get to this tryout. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was, I mean, the Empire Games um, was New York's version of what Team Chesapeake was back in the, the day. And the Empire Games was a very similar format where the college, the college coaches got to see the high school coaches' recommendations for their bl- best players off their roster. And then the combination would end up cutting down teams to where you truly had the representative top talent from the area. Um, and it, you know, there's not, there's not the monetary exchange like there is in the club community and between the, there's not the transactional exchange between the coaches and the college community, et cetera. Um, and it was, it was a, a very exciting, very fun opportunity. It was kind of like the, um, what, what's a, like the U S tryouts now are similar to what it was back right. in the day club, the club market dominates the recruiting scene nowadays, but the open format tryout was very, very interesting for sure. Right, yeah. The recruiting landscapes for sure changed. We'll touch on that, um, in a little bit, but let's go on to Johns Hopkins. So you ended up going to Johns Hopkins. Uh, what, what years were you there? Oh, five to nine. Oh, five to nine. And how did you get seen by Hopkins? How did uh, how was your time with Coach Petro, et cetera? Sure, yeah. So Team Chesapeake was at the beginning of the summer, June of my rising my rising senior senior year, um, and I had a I had a big summer of events lined up. Um, again, Team Chesapeake's a weekend long of tryouts, and then two weeks later, you have the Canadian U19 scrimmages if you make that roster. I made the roster. I had an exceptional weekend worth of games, um, and that's where I got the majority of my looks in in that the Canadian U19 game. I also tore my spleen, so I was out for the remainder of the summer, uh, but I generated enough interest from a good chunk of the college community during the course of that weekend um, to propel all of those recruiting opportunities for myself. Uh, it ended up coming down for, for me to Ohio State and Hopkins, two very different schools providing two very different, both social academic experiences and um, an up and coming Ohio State program with Joe Bresci, who's now at UNC, who's one of my still to, to this day, one of my favorite collegiate figures um, and and Hopkins with with Petro and uh, at the time Coach Tierney and Coach Dwan. Yeah, I mean, I know from just watching you on TV. I've never had any interactions with, interaction with Coach Petro. Seems like a very intense guy. Yeah, uh, maybe he's a little tame these days in 2019. But what was he like back in the uh, 05 to 09 era? Yeah, so P- Petro, uh, when when you look back on your experience, um, the the qualities he has as both a a figurehead of a program, a a mentor to young men, and a motivator are are unique and create a create a dynamic in the coaching player relationship that are it's truly one of a kind because he's one of the best person to person relators that I've experienced on a on a mentor level he is great with his he's great in the recruiting scene he's great with his young guys building relationships he spends as much time as he can outside of the on-field experience with his players he opens his office up for the entirety of the day basically so he's got guys coming in and out of his office uh 
Monday through Saturday, Sunday being his only real day off. He's one of the hardest workers in the college community that I, I've surely interacted with. And then you step out on the field with him, and the thing that he's so gifted or unique at doing is creating a tempo and a culture that demands his teams carry a competitive edge. And by that, I mean the 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 level of practice expectation as soon as you step out on the field is 100 miles an hour it's you're going toe to toe with your teammate and he is great at uh at demanding the practice experience be as close to the the level of intensity you're going to experience in your game um and that's that's the truly unique part of the Hopkins experience in my mind is his culture that he has created in building team, building roster, building individual player um, lends towards his teams, his players having that unique edge in what they experience when they step out on the field with him. And then he's got a great supporting cast. I had Coach Tierney, who's now at Hofstra, the head coach at Hofstra. Uh, he was the offensive coordinator for my first two years. Coach Dwan was there my entire four years. Coach Dwan's the laid back, fun, uh, laughing all the time personality. And then Coach Tierney and Coach Benson provided a nice counterbalance to Coach Petro. Um, where you step out on the field with them and they're serious, they're stern, but they're also very relatable in the on-field experience. Uh, so it was a nice balance of a roster. Yeah, I mean, I think what I really liked what you touched on is during my college recruiting experience and then my time in college, the best coaches in the world play this 50-50 game of, you know, it is a relationship business. You're not yeah. getting anywhere if you're not prevalent in the community, you're not doing well with your players off the field. Yeah. And then 50% is coaching. It's not just because your title's coach, you're not just on the field all the time. Yeah. And I think the best coaches in the world, you know, you even mentioned Coach Bresci, who was at Ohio State, now at UNC. Yep. When I was going through my recruiting process, one of the most personable people you can probably ever yep. meet. Um, and that's probably what drew me to going where I went with Coach Bill Tierney at Denver. When you walk into his office, it's it's not lacrosse. It's you know family oriented. Yeah. It's it's a relationship thing. So yeah, you want to you want to coach. You want to you want teachers. You want leaders in your life that set a precedent of responsibility. Like learning learning how to engage in a person on the level of both relating as an individual, but also demanding a a level of service and expectation that exceeds what they think is possible. Yeah. And those are the people that in my life that I really look back and say like. Uh, the most lasting and profound impact is the that sense of I can do it, but I can also do more than this than what I'm giving in this moment. And that's that constant striving uphill of saying like, this is your this is your role in the team. This is your responsibility. This is how you make yourself, and as a result, the guys around you as good as possible. And I yeah. think that's the thing that Petro. Um, has a unique gifting for yeah he's he's seemingly one of the best coaches to ever do it um interested to see how hopkins continues to grow and um see where they go from here with him under the helm so yeah yeah it's interesting because they're going through the as the lacrosse market expands and grows and the the division one pool doesn't expand at that same rate you're getting so many programs develop over the last 10 years very rapidly in terms of their competitive potential and uh hopkins is kind of like a a bad analogy but like the lakers through the course of the the 
the mid 2010 where you're getting what had been the dominant recruiting classes over and over and over and over again and final four experiences and championship experiences. And, uh, so it, it is certainly hard through the course of, a you know, through the course of every single season to land those classes. And it's nice to see the competitive umbrella of the top 20 grow to the point where you're not seeing the same four teams in it over and over and over again. You know, we've seen that with, you know, uh, Yale winning, Denver winning. Penn State Penn popping State, into it, you yeah, know. Yeah, Ohio State, a few Towson even. Yeah. So it's nice to see a lot of, you know, it provides a lot of opportunity for players out there. You don't have to go to, you know, the top five schools of years past to go to a Final Four. Yeah. You, know, you can strive to go to a place like Richmond and maybe, just maybe, they might make it to a Final Four. Yeah. So that's really cool. And it, it provides a lot of opportunities for the lacrosse community um, yeah. across, the, across the country. So, all right. So now let's transition from you're Hopkins player. There's probably some time in between there, but how did you find your way to Oregon of all places from sure. Maryland? Yeah. So I, I got involved in an internship out here in 2000. So I graduated 2009. I spent a year downtown Annapolis with a bunch of our buddies. Um, and at that same time, everyone was kind of splitting up all over the place. Two guys got into the master's programs that they were applying for. One guy started working on the Hill, moved out to D.C. And so I was like, all right, I'll go take an adventure out in the West Coast, which is where I've always wanted to at least have a tenure for a period of time in my life. And um, I married a girl out here, had some kids out here. My wife's family is from this area, so that's kind of what has locked us into the Oregon community. And then slowly through time, I got roped into the lacrosse world and the coaching world. And and now it's a a big part of both of my professional network and my friendship network as as well. Where did you um, first start coaching in Oregon? Uh, I first started in Vancouver, Washington at Kingsway. Kingsway was the only, at the time when I started, which would have been 2012, 13, Kingsway was the only program represented in the whole Clark County area. Um, and they were playing in the, the Division One Seattle Metro uh, Washington Lacrosse Conference. Um, and that was... 2013 through 2000 and I think 16 was my last year. I, I was there four years. I assisted for two. I head coached for two. Um, and then slowly I got roped back in. We were living in Portland at the time and I was trying to cut back on my travel commute. So uh, slowly got roped back into the Oregon market and Central Catholic ended up being a landing home because I was living right around the corner from there in the Laura Hurst area. Yeah. And uh, what what made you get your start in the club world? So you coached Kingsway, yeah, spring season. How did you get your start or start with club ball? Yeah, so after the internship was done that I got involved in, I was uh, doing all my postbacks to go to medical school. Um, so uh, the healthcare has always been a passion and interest of mine. Um, and at the time, I was doing my postbacks, and I was starting to develop out a lacrosse network to making cash doing clinics and camps and stuff like that, doing a little bit of a circuit. Um, and then through the course of that next 18 months, we it, the programming started to grow into what became Valhalla Lacrosse, the, the club, the, the club that really represented Clark County to much of um, 
to to the vast majority of the program, it was Clark County catered. All the the, the facilities we ran out of, all of the the demographic of, of families were all Clark County based, um, and that was the Valhalla Cross lasted for four years as a club serving programming to to player team league tournament etc. Um, and at the time, again, I was juggling both school, uh, full-time school and doing club stuff, entrepreneurial on the side. And around the same time that I was applying for med schools or PT programs, whichever the route was going to be, I was having to make a decision like this, this club industry for me was going to have to be a full-time job or it was going to kind of all fall apart and I would have to pursue med school. And at the time I was enjoying the, enjoying the entrepreneurial side of the club world. So I just gave it a push and said, all right, I'll give it the next handful of years to see where this thing grows and, and develops. And, um, that's when we started to expand more into the the Portland market. We started on the south southeast side. Programs like Clackamas, a lot of support from the Clackamas, Oregon City, Grant, East Side, um, and that was mm, 2014, 15, 16, 17 in that range. Um, and then 2017, we. I started to develop this vision of what club lacrosse in Oregon could look like like if you could have the operations of it under more of a coaching cooperative model. So you could pull in many or most or even all of the most respected coaching names in the state under one umbrella and collaborate on the training experience, collaborate on the X's and O's, enjoy a lot of stability in terms of staff and staff retention um, and expand the network, both in in the player network that we had, the coaching resource network that we had and the college community network that we all shared. So that vision started to really develop in 2016, 2017, and then 2017, 2018, it started to come to fruition. At the time we were really, um, 3D came into the market, what was that, 2014, 2013, yeah, some, something, like something that. in that range. And we were really struggling with the the pitch that 3D brought hard, which was like national teams, Pacific teams, these are the things that are going to get you recruited. Um, and so at the time, we were looking for what what additional resources could we help provide to players in our network pool and under our club umbrella that would provide them a national team experience, provide them additional tournament exposure, provide them supplemental resources to the exposure recruiting side as they got into their high school years. And that's where the Madlax relationship started to develop because the the DC Madlax program is arguably top five, top 10 nationally at every single top to bottom, every single age group, every, every group and every community has some teams that are better, some teams that are not as strong, but top to bottom, they're top 10 nationally. Um, and that's how that relationship started to, to develop between us and the Madlax group. And that's how it ended up becoming Madlax Oregon to help foster and, and support, uh, the, our Oregon community, Hank, Oregon communities hankering for, we want national teams. We want Pacific teams. We want additional opportunities on top of what we're already doing. Um, and through the course of the last two years, and really the the vision as we develop out is uh, trying to 
not oversell. And I think in some ways the national team stuff has been oversold to everyone in getting back to the concept of what, what the Oregon market and the Oregon families need to begin or, or remember is that there's enough talent in Oregon lacrosse to put teams together that can be competitive nationally to the point where they can garner enough exposure and attention that does really generate, truly generate exposure opportunities for the kids where the college coaches are saying, hey, have you seen that Oregon team play? Or have you seen, you know, take Cody Hart, for example, take uh, Tucker Dordovic, take Sam Hanley, take the guys that there's always going to be in every class a handful of blue chips. And if you put a lot of the best players around each other in Oregon and you go put them into the national circuit of the most premier events in the country, you do have the opportunity to really put Oregon on the map. And that's really what our the club ethos for us has been kind of that dual umbrella of uh, on the coaching front, streamlining all of our assets and resources in such a way that we're providing the highest training value that we can provide with the best the best staffing resources for the players. And on the player side, working as hard as we can to streamline the 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 collaboration of most if not all because as a small and developing marketplace um you know Oregon's still 10 15 years behind even Seattle 20 years behind San Diego in terms of its development in a small and growing marketplace you there's there's it's unlikely to see two or three teams per grade be that the, the competitive of the competitive level that's going to provide enough uh, tournament exposure and experience to where they can make those buzzes in the community. And so that's really what been what our push has been over the last two years for the kids, for our program, for, for what is Mad Lax, Oregon, where families are going to invest, you know, 75, 85, 95% of their time, energy finances into their Oregon club, into their regional team and the regional representation. And that has to be, representing them in the ways that they see to meet their players, to meet their child's goal through the course of their middle school and high school years, both in development and exposure. So that's really become where we are at as an organization, as a, at, at, as an entity operationally, and then just what we're aiming for from top to bottom. Yeah. And And you saw back in you know, JB Hanley in his Oregon Pride group basically did the same thing and he put a ton of the best players around his his son in the twenty eighteen class and they would enter many of the best tournaments in the country and he created a lot of buzz and, and generated a lot of opportunities for the players around Sam and around Emmett Jones and around all those all those guys in that eighteen class and there was what, eight, nine division one commits from that twenty eighteen Oregon Pride group and a bunch of D two D2, D3, they probably had 15 commits off that roster. And then you look back at the Black Rhino 2016, 2017 group, um, and that group did the same thing where they landed seven, eight Division I commits and 15, 18 D1, D2, D3 guys. So that's really where where our direction is heading as a club. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's what Oregon needs is Oregon-based teams – to go out and prove themselves on the circuit. I think your team, the 21 team this summer, did that. You know, really talented team, played really well together and went and competed and beat some of the 
top premier teams in the country and competed really well at very high end events. Yeah, super proud of those guys. They um so coming into what is arguably the most important season, um that group developed a chemistry, a camaraderie, and an edge to them in tournament play where they entered three of the bigger events and arguably the biggest event in NLF and competed against every single team that they stepped up against to the point where um, they did what we had kind of set out to do in this vision. They started college coaches talking, hey, have you seen that Oregon that Oregon team play? Have you seen this player, or this player, or this player? What about this guy? Um, and they did a great job of really setting themselves up in terms of their collegiate opportunities for success. Um, so, yeah, that that's really what we're aiming for from top to bottom on scale of, of the club experience. Yeah, I, I mean, I think what a lot of parents and players need to understand is, yeah, it's great. You can send your kid off to go play with a national team here and a national team there, and you don't really have to be a part of your Oregon team, but when you get all the best players together, everyone can help each other get recruited. So when yeah. you put the best teams on the field and they compete well together, then they're all going to get recruited. Yeah. It's not just about the singular player, or, um, one player here, one player there. And I think the 2016 Black Rhino team and the 2018 Oregon Pride team were prime examples of how everyone can help everyone get recruited. Yeah, um, totally. Kind of playing for the other guy to get recruited, not yourself. Yeah, and I've coached a lot of club. I, I don't know how much club you had experience experience with prior to Oregon or at like in your Denver experience, but I've coached a decent number of uh, club programs through my collegiate experience in my college years and just after college. And the one thing that is true about the Oregon community generally is that uh, the coaching experience is still exceedingly rewarding because you have a bunch of guys that, again, on the whole, have a decent sense of reality and where they fit on the national scale. And therefore are most of them are exceedingly passionate and exceedingly coachable across the board. And as you start getting in the developed marketplaces club, the club communities have been around for so long and club ego is so big that there's more individual effort. There's less real team play and chemistry. And, um, it just makes the coaching the club experience that much more rewarding, at least from my perspective. And it also creates an edge that our Oregon teams, although, you go put them up against Laxatusic, you go put them up against 91, you go put them up against Primetime Express, et cetera. They probably aren't top end talented to the, to the scale that those programs are. However, you put them into the game experiences with, with the level of X's and O's that they can execute at and the level of camaraderie that those guys can, can develop together. And it, it really is fun lacrosse to watch. It's yeah. fun lacrosse to coach, and it's a super rewarding experience from my perspective. Yeah, I think the trajectory of, of how we can get better is, is exponential compared to a lot of other places. We're so young, so I've seen uh, the maturation of a lot of players in just a short period of time. Right? Yeah. So from freshman to sophomore year, these kids make massive jumps. They do that on the East Coast, but it's less dramatic, I think, than what we see in Oregon yeah. or Washington or the Northwest. So. Uh, Madlax is definitely a part of that. So I just want to talk to you about you. Madlax recently hired um, one of my friends and you know coaching mentors, Cam Rayfish, yep. is like a full time director. I've, oh, yeah. We'd be remiss to not talk about that. And um, what attracted you to hiring Cam full time and bringing him on staff? And what does he kind of bring to the table for Madlax? Yeah, I mean, uh, Cam is 
one of the like my our generation's staples in the Oregon lacrosse community. Um, and the, you know, he's been coaching what, 15 years now, 16 years between, between OES and club ball and youth lacrosse and his time at Bigfoot and the relationships he's developed. And he's arguably the most connected player in all of Oregon lacrosse to the youth and the level of energy, the level of passion, level of commitment he has to the 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 dual fold which makes great coaches and leaders of uh of pers- personal development and demanding personal development from character development from the players themselves and also coaching and coaching development he is a student of the game but he also he also brings a he brings a passion he brings a joy he brings an expectation like we were talking about before with petro that catches fire underneath the, the the players that he has the chance to mentor and to coach. And that's one of the things that I always look up to him. And, and from the first time that I coached against him and coached alongside of him, I've always thought like I can use a little bit more of that in my coaching and my training and my teaching experience with these, the younger generations. And he's somebody that's surely a mentor, even though we're about the same age, he's surely a mentor to me and the coaching community. And so we've eyed him as a potential for a full-time position for the last two years or so and, and timing wasn't right and, and situations weren't right and kind of the stars aligned through the course of the last eight months for him to transition away from Bigfoot, which think about how much he's done through the cross community at Bigfoot um, for the course of full-time for, what, 10 to 12 years and has been inside that shop since his high school, college days um, and really been a staple of that that community in the Bigfoot network for so many years. Um, and it just worked out in terms of where we were at and what we were available, what, what we had available to offer and what his goals were. So we're super excited to have him on board, really excited to have his leadership, his vision. He's going to be generating some additional programming for us. And we're excited about a lot of the opportunities that we have coming up in 2020 that we think the community is really going to embrace. What I, I mean, what I liked what he brings to the table is, is that energy you talked about, you watch any of his teams play and his passion and energy on the sideline, and it's all in a positive manner. It just really, you know, sparks his team. Yeah. And if we can, if you can and he can transfer that from every age group to every team, then the program is just going to take off. Yeah. Yeah. And the little, the, I mean, those that know Cam know this about him, but he is also a meticulous, like I have, I have a lot of reasonable qualities that lend towards entrepreneurial big picture stuff. I am not an exceptional manager of the operations, logistics, et cetera. And the people that know Cam well and those that that don't, the one thing that is very true about Cam is he is an exceptional manager of peers, an exceptional manager of programs an exceptional manager of young guys and he is very meticulous and very detail oriented which will only help all of our programming top to bottom so we're really excited to have yeah, that it goes resource. back to that relationship coach you know, yeah 50 relationships 50 percent coaching and then you add you know his detention to detail and stuff like that i'm excited to continue coaching with him through madlax and work with him so yeah, yeah. totally um let's transition uh, a little bit i know we don't have much time left but let's talk about lacrosse in oregon as a whole so let's 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 
think about high school lacrosse and youth lacrosse. It's transition out of the club world into the high school scene, into the youth scene in the yeah. spring. Um, curious to know your thoughts on kind of where we are now in, in the grand picture of you know the country and where you see us going from here or where you would like to see us going from yeah here. totally um i have a little bit more time also i think i got i have a 4 30 so cool. i got about 40 minutes yeah. um so regarding oregon lacrosse i i think we're at as like everyone that not everyone, but a decent number of people have a conversation around fear on the the attrition that they have seen in the youth and in the high school numbers and and in the quality of the experience, et cetera. Um, and what what I always go back to when I talk to families, when I talk to some of our staff, when I talk to coaches, is the thing that doesn't get appreciated here in Oregon lacrosse as it maybe should is that we're pioneering the sport, right? And that sport's going to go in waves and it's going to grow exponentially and then it's going to plateau decline. Then it's going to grow again and then it's going to plateau and decline. And it's going to be a work and it's a labor of love. And most of our players are still first-generation lacrosse kids where their parents have no lacrosse experience. They don't have any siblings that have played before them. Probably 50% of or more of the Oregon marketplace still kind of falls in that category. And it, it like what, your, your graduating class, high school, college, your group was probably one of the first that actually went from three, four, five, six lacrosse. So yeah, the, actually the, the first, the, the earliest... I graduated in 2012, and the earliest it was offered to me was fifth grade. Yeah. And that's, you know, only seven years ago. You know, think about the East Coast. They're playing lacrosse basically when they're born. Yeah, they're yeah. In that family, so. And I, and I think that that's something that, like, we always have to remember and come back to is, is be patient. Be patient with the growth of the sport. Allow enough room for mistakes to be made and to 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 plan and know that the plan that you're developing, the strategies of growth that you're developing are likely you're going to look back and say like, oh, we did some of these things wrong. But we're, everyone's putting their best effort from the parents that are volunteering time to help organize rec or spring or select to the coaches, to the players, everyone's doing their best. And I think that um, we have to have a little bit more grace with the fact that like the, the sport's going to come in in waves and we're going to have some growing pains and the, the teams and the players experience is going to be below what many of us would consider the ideal, the ideal service rendered, the ideal talent rendered, the ideal group player team, et cetera. And I think that we have to remember like, that's okay. That's where we're at right now. Um, and I also like I had the experience at Kingsway walking through an interesting transitional period with them where Kingsway again was the only so take all of Clark County right across the river. They were the only high school and youth program and they were busting at the seams, obviously, because there's ten high schools, so many middle schools and elementary schools within a twenty mile radius of of where Kingsway was operating out of. Um and they were the only youth program, the only high school program at the time when I first started. And through the course of the next four years, partly Washington lacrosse board driven because at some point we were driving midweek games to go play Seattle proper, Mercer Island, Bellevue, Issaquah, 
games where you're going Wednesday night for a seven o'clock game and you're hopping on the bus at one o'clock to miss traffic and you're hopping back on the bus at 1030 and you're getting home at two and same thing. They would just alternating schedules. They'd be driving down to us next year. And so at some point, the Washington lacrosse board started to really mandate a transitional period. Like, Hey, we need to see a league start to develop in the Clark County area. And one of the things that wasn't managed well, because we all want to see the sport grow. We want to see teams pop up. We want to see, um, proxy to travel for decrease for families we want to see we want to see community representation like we have in the established sports like football or baseball or soccer where you can go play in a rec soccer program that's reasonably competitive and you can go drive or walk to your local elementary school grass field you know and so there's there's i understand the push to expand 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 i think through the course of that late the the 2005 to 2015, when the numbers were really busting at the seams, there there became this big push to start expanding programs, expanding programs, expanding programs. And one of the things that was sacrificed when we started expanding programs at the rate that we did was the quality of experience for the kids, for the players. Because when you have, let's take Lincoln Youth Lacrosse, if you have three teams at seven, eight, and all of a sudden you split those guys and let's take a, a fourth of the roster goes to, you know, whatever program that was helping feed Lincoln Youth Lacrosse. Uh, yeah. Bad example, but um, a fourth of the roster goes there. Now, both of those teams' experiences are affected. And generally, the, the, the startup program has a very difficult time at, you know, the, the, the established players, the players that have been inside lacrosse for years, have a frustrating experience because all of a sudden their experience went from good to, to works to struggle. And the, the mid tier player doesn't have the same excitement and the same experience. And then the low tier players, now it becomes very far more challenging to retain players because the player experience has decreased. And I saw that at Kingsway where, you know, Kingsway through the course of 20, 2014, 2013, all the way through 2018, saw five high school programs pop up. So all of a sudden, Kingsway split, and it was River and Skyview. Camus popped up. Um, Mountain View started a program last year, and then you had Union that has a program. So all of a sudden, you have five teams, but there wasn't the attention to detail in the youth program, so you never really had – you were losing players at the youth experience as you started trying to split programs, and all of a sudden we have 12 kids, 13 kids in our 7-8 team, and we're struggling to retain players on the youth side. And because we're losing players on the youth side, it's harder to retain a JV experience to truly cater to the JV players and a varsity experience that truly caters to the varsity players. And so you're losing guys on the high school side. And because the push to expand trumped the, the, the trumped a systematic approach to how we can manage that experience and expand at the same time or have have metrics in place that manage the splits to where it's, Hey, we're going to take a three, four age group. As soon as we have 40 kids at three, four age group and 18 are represented by one, one community, one school community and 30, 20 or two are from the other. Then we'll start the split at three, four and we'll let those three, four start to build into five, six get players around them, start to build into seven, eight, get players around them. And all of a sudden you have, you have some critical mass of let's take, 
you got to have 10 to 16, 10 to eight, 10 to 14 players per grade coming into your high school program to really support the numbers you need to run quality JV varsity experiences. And so I think when I think of Oregon lacrosse and the current state of Oregon lacrosse, I always think about those two things is we need to take more careful ownership over how we manage the, the transition of the growth of the sport because we are booming at the scenes for a period of time and we're expanding like crazy but we sacrifice the quality of experience. But we also need to have grace that like everyone's trying to do their best in in strategizing how we can manage the sport in the area and the experience is going to be less than what we would, could hope for as the ideal, but everyone's putting in their best effort top to bottom. And so we need to make sure we're continually redirecting rescripting like all right, what makes sense now? We've seen some of this attrition start to happen. What makes sense now? And how do we manage the player experience and growth simultaneously to make it make sense for the sport's future? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think. Well, I think it's interesting that you say busting at the seams for for Kingsway. What did that mean? Like, how many kids teams were they facilitating? Do you know for Kingsway? Yeah, yeah. So at at the time when I was at Kingsway, they had three seven eight teams, three five six teams, and they had a J, they they were managing a JV two, a JV and a varsity experience. What's what's funny is that we consider that busting at the seams, whereas yeah. Yorktown on the East Coast, Del Barton, Calvert Hall, that's they're still low numbers. Totally right. They're not. Yeah. You know, they're running four or five teams at their high school level. They got a freshman A, a freshman B, maybe they got a JV one, JV two, yeah. and a varsity that all have thirty kids on each roster. Right. So, yeah. we. I mean, you know, they're not thinking like, oh, let's just split now because Yorktown's got too many kids. Yeah. And I think we 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 need to look at you know people across the country, our peers, so to speak, that have gone through all their growing pains already and say like hey what what did they do that worked and what did they do that didn't work yeah you know, look at san diego lacrosse now tory pines has got a couple teams and you know their youth programs bustling at, you know in our terms busting at the seams but you know they're not going to split because it's a healthy program so I'm, I'm i'm interested to see how we go from there but i like your um idea that protecting the player experience needs to come first yeah and we can't just expand and split and fracture off without protecting that experience first that has to be number one priority yep yep that's i always go back to protect the player experience and if you're going to start making uh if you're going to start making divisions to help geography to help Mm -hmm. location for families do it at the youngest youth level possible and then let it mature to the high school program to where you can actually see some critical mass to manage a high school experience at a quality that actually meets the kid's interest. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely way easier said than done sitting here, but um, definitely interesting to yeah. talk about. And I hope the conversation continues, not just with us, but with everybody. Yeah. Uh, I want the players out there at any high school, whatever you go to, to have the best experience in the youth program, to have the best experience, whether you're a first grader or eighth grader. So, yeah. Um, interesting. So, Let's go on to um, something more for the the coaches of the world. Kind of interested in your lacrosse philosophies and maybe how you brought that to Madlax or how you bring that over to Central Catholic. And um, let's just talk about like maybe your offensive philosophy to start. How do you coach the game from an offensive standpoint? Um, what are you looking for in an offensive player or an offensive team? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'm gonna. I'll redirect the question. And I'll answer the, the your question second. I want to go back to. Um, to just general player development, and then okay. I'll go yep. into my offensive, like my my systematic, my, my schema development. Yeah, but definitely makes more sense. Um, on the player development side, I think 
what I always, what my sister taught me at a young age, because my first stick was obviously a girl stick, because those were the only sticks in my house other than that. It was baseball bats and, and hockey yeah. sticks, et cetera. But my first stick was a girl stick. And I would follow her to the local elementary school, which is a short walk around the corner from us. And the, the thing that I learned most from her was you can, with the unique aspect of the hand-eye coordination that's demanded in this sport, you can train exceedingly efficient and exceedingly effective with the right direction and and routine in your in your approach to uh, to to your skill development. And I think that's the thing that I always come back to for young players when I'm thinking through like somebody's coming to me and asking, "Hey, what do you think my kid needs? What what can I be working on? What should I what what should I be improving on?" And I always come back to like what players should be improving on is the efficiency and effectiveness of their time spent developing and 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 acquiring skills with this stick. And the best way to do that is against a brick wall. Like I've never seen in all of my experience, I wasn't the most athletic kid growing up. I, I wasn't a, a tier one athlete. I wasn't. Uh, I, I didn't have a massive frame on me. I wasn't the fastest player on the field. But one of the things that I did have, I had the. I had one of the softest hands in every program that I played for, and part of the reason was I was just. A, I, I was effective in my training regimen against the wall. I see guys that go out and they do a hundred quick sticks in a row, and they do you know thirty behind the backs in the row, and they do one handed switch hands, etc. And the routines never really challenge the the efficiency that they can create and translate to on field demand. Like I, I'm looking out your window right here, and I see a rebounder in your backyard from one of your neighbors. And yep. the the rebounder over there is another way of uh, it's a great introductory tool. But at some point early in your in your trajectory, you're going to grow past the the limitations that the rebounder brings because the ball comes back to you so slowly. And so what I always come back to is like, if your if your wall ball routine doesn't demand you receiving the ball in the triple threat position, ready to shoot, feed, dodge, if your wall ball routine doesn't have the ball zipping back to you at 80, 85 miles an hour to you, if your wall ball routine isn't challenging you to get the ball off your, off your stick with pace, with velocity, and with with quickness, then it's never going to translate to the on field demands. And so I always come back to that with all of my kids is as I walk through wall ball routines and I they show me what they're doing. And I find that most kids in Oregon, partly because they're first gen lacrosse families, most kids in Oregon are just spending their time so inefficiently and really limiting the ceiling of their skill development. Um, and so that's what I always come back to on the skill development side is until your stick is to the point righty lefty where you're able to handle the ball in the triple threat position off a wall with velocity, getting the ball in and out of the stick quickly, basically shoot, we call it hard ball um, in college is, is the, the term we would use for our wall ball work, but um, basically shooting the ball back and forth at the wall. Your your skills aren't where they need to be to start developing out much else in your repertoire. If somebody comes to me and says, like, hey, I'm the best stick on the field. I can catch every single thing that comes to me. I can catch it loaded and shoot the ball quickly, get it in and out of my stick. Um, I, 
and I didn't make this team. Like I've never heard that happen and I've never seen it happen on the field. So that's why I always come back to like, you want to start getting private lessons, doing shooting work. That's great. You know, everyone, everyone needs to do what they, what they feel is in their best interest, but please make sure you're really working your routine and your, your structure in terms of your skill development in a way that is improving the efficiency, the effects, the effectiveness of the tools you have available to yeah, you. I, I think, you know, it's, it's, you know, only the second podcast, but the second podcast in a row where the wall has been the number one training tool yeah. for you. And I had a very influential player, Alex Slusher sitting here who just graduated going off to Princeton who, I mean, crushes the wall, yeah. right? Goes there, you know, he had a conversation with Michael Sowers, who's the best players in the country. He said, hey, if you're not hitting the wall every day, at least 500 times, and, you know, Slusher's going to do it with pace and purpose because that's just the kind of kid he is, yeah. um, then you're doing something wrong because the wall is, A, free, and it's uh, not hard to find one, Yeah, right? So, you know, second podcast in a row, I guarantee that the third guy I have on is going to say something about the wall, so... Um, super interesting. You don't need a, a ladder and a private strength coach and all this stuff to get good at sport of lacrosse because the most important thing in the sport of lacrosse is how good is your stick. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah, and then uh, regarding the question that you asked in terms of my offensive philosophies, like I came from a system and a scheme where I, I really saw a transition of the sport at Hopkins where the the late 90s, early 2000s was all play-oriented um, where they did – they did less read and react. They did more organize in sets. Ball goes to A, ball goes to B, come off this pick, so hopefully we can hit it. Yeah, and it's, yeah. you know, it's a, I still have that as, you know, 40% of what I go to because in Oregon I find it's, it's, an, it's an, when you're working with a lower general ceiling across the board, take, Baltimore, take the MIAA schools, you know, that the, the player average skill level is significantly higher across the board. And so your, your offensive playbook opens up dramatically. Um, here in Oregon, I, I still find that I, I rely reasonably heavily on the, the play scheme, um, just because it's a way to open, it's a way to free hands. It's a way to, to get guys open when you can't generate enough quality opportunity off of, off of read and react style offenses through the course of the last really, you know, club and the club marketplace really transitioned to me into it. Some people call it the two man game. I like to call it the read, read and react game where you're, you're putting your you're putting offensive sets and offensive motions and flows in play where you keep you keep five guys in scoring position at all times you keep guys through the in positions and places on the field where they can be effective to generate opportunities both for themselves and for their partners and you put guys off ball and in, in threatening and scoring positions where it's 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 easy to execute um, or exploit the the help slide positionings. And so when I look into my read and react offense, it's always around like, all right, where, where is the, where's the help slide coming from? Where's the backside help coming from? And how do I want to generate my game plan against this team to help exploit where they traditionally, where they generally or uh, inside of their scheme where they like to help from. So that's where I have moved more heavily to the read and react style offense, but I do still think uh, 
play system scheme is um, is is a big part or, or a decent chunk of my arsenal that I go to on the offensive side. Yeah, so I mean, I, I like what you talked about keeping five guys in the scoring position. I I like to keep the ball above the net as close to the cage in terms of like if you had an alley down the cage try to get it to the middle as much as possible it's the most threatening position it puts the defense on the most edge whether they're going to help or not help on a certain dodge um you know i i I don't think you need more than one person at x yeah i'm a a swing guy from x dodge from there if the ball goes off the end line bullets keep the ball above and try to do our damage from there because everyone can shoot everyone can shoot if they're above the net yeah um what about it from a defensive philosophy? How how does uh, I know you come from a more offensive background, but you did play for Coach Petro, and um, curious to see maybe if that changed yeah, your yeah. defensive philosophy at all. Yeah, so Hopkins, the one thing that will always be true with Petro at the helm is they will always be a defensive first team um, in terms of how the practice practice progression practice plans go in terms of the the expected iq of the players so i my first year coming in my second year freshman sophomore year at hopkins i was playing behind kevin huntley who was a three-time all-american great lefty out of calvert hall phenomenal finisher phenomenal scorer and there was certainly no way that i was going to see the field attacks so i transitioned to playing midfield and i played a decent chunk of d midi so i actually got the perk through the course of my first two years of learning both sides of the ball and spending a lot more time in coach petro's office learning the defensive side which i i'm very thankful for in hindsight because i do i do have a great appreciation for the the nuance of defensive scheme and where my personnel dependent but where our um where our defensive strat philosophies or where my defensive philosophies have developed is outside of that petro scheme where you're um where you're you're extending on ball you're not letting you're not picking the balls up you're not picking the ball carry up inside the box you're extending out on the ball and you're supporting hard and heavy on the backside top down furthest away is kind of like the concept so most most teams will help bottom up will help from the they'll ask their close defensemen to do more of the work and i'm from a general uh philosophy that asks the midfielders to be far more involved in this in the help scheme and the slide packages and it it is it is a a big learning curve at first for the midfielders because most of them are only asked to play on ball and they're never really asked to support in the the scheme of the the help mm-hmm. defense um but i find it to be a far more effective tool in executing helps id if you can get your midfielders and your lsms to really buy into that to that philosophy both yes. in terms of like getting out making approaches getting on gloves but also sprinting sprinting back in and helping on the backside and being able to communicate the redirects and the releases and the recoveries i mean it's a little more work for the guys up top to obviously get in and out faster but it 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 leaves you in a less vulnerable state right you're not sliding bottom up um to help and then leaving you know you know backside low attackment open or famidi creeps down there the crease might be open or um you know, it's my general philosophy too. Is that let's let's let the poles play below, and you know, try to pressure out there, and then let's let's keep everyone up top. Yeah, try to you know try to help from that triangle of players, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The other thing I think I, I've I have really embraced, and I really like the idea and the concept strategy wise is this idea of the pre slide and the pre slide package. Um, and for us at, in college, the pre slide meant. Uh, you your on ball defense is dictating the the help 
the help side positioning, the help side philosophy, right? So it requires first and foremost that you that you demand and you emphasize what the expectations are for our on-ball D because you're basically pre-sliding into where your help slide, where your two slide, where your three slide is coming from. And if you get beat to like Denver plays a different style of D, you know, where they'll pack it in, they'll pick the ball up inside the box line, they'll let them go either way and they'll read and react off of it. Um, Petro's scheme was a little bit different where they're going to get beat to one side of the field, but they're going to be pre-slid to get, quickly to the help that that that's needed if they get beat to that one side of the field they, they're more vulnerable if they if they give up the other side of the field but they're quicker to release recover redesignate if they get beat to that side of the field right. yeah no I, I i think you know just being under coach tyranny he kind of developed this hot you know one slide two slide style of defense um you know i think he pioneered it i don't know when the 90s 80s something like that um you know, and his philosophy was, you know, shade to a side, make sure we're ready to help to where we're shading to. And over the, you know, when I was playing college across from 2012 to 2015 was my tenure, uh, tenure at Denver. Um, I saw a drastic shift in how people were starting to play defense in that. I think Notre Dame started to do it first in that teams were so good at getting topside and so good at getting the middle. And the two main game on the wings was dictating that. Right. Yeah. And now you have to be ready to slide to everything. Yeah. Um, depending on how good the offense is. Right. I probably can change depending yep. on who you're playing. Um, the, the team that we had the most trouble with scoring a lot of the times, even though we had a lot of success against them was Notre Dame. Um, and they, man, they just they could slide to anything and help with anything, and it was all about their posture and um, the communication, the level of communication they could get to. I call it like yeah. the next level of communication. Like the first level is like I'm hot, I'm two, maybe I get a three call in there. Yeah, yeah. And the next level is like using names, telling exactly where you on the field, telling who else is hot, telling to get to the left side of your man, get to the right side of your man. Um, you know, it's interesting that. That I, you know, I I think I really saw a change in how defense was trying to be played, and I know a lot of people are still trying to shade and go that way, and a lot of people are now trying to slide to anything they can. Yeah, and yeah. it's interesting to see the two, you know, a defense that plays that way go against defense that plays that way, and just see who. Yeah, see who and and part of this also is is inside of the 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 pace development of the collegiate game too yeah. like with the, with the new shot clock and the early offense the 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 idea of getting out and extending on ball has changed yeah. um and and it's partly kind of like goaltender predicated like if, if you have a highly skilled take oes's defense for example of two years ago when they had jack in the cage like that kid would make up five six goals a game just because he was a he was so confident in the cage that the defense could therefore pack it in. And when you can pack it in as far as you can and give up the perimeter, you have far more availability to be in the read and react style defense mm-hmm. where the, where the help side defense is, is not as long of slides in that scenario and they can go early and they can recover early. Um, and so I definitely think that like you're going to see, through the course of the next couple of seasons, you'll see defenses transition and it will be interesting to see who 
how the schemes start to change a little bit with the shot clock and with how coaches adapt to the shot clock schemes. Yeah, I mean, you know, we don't have to deal with that in high school yet, but um, always trying to learn from other coaches and try to take pull stuff from college programs. And even though we're not playing in the shot clock with the shot clock in high school, I, um, the MIAA is, which is awesome, but we're not in Oregon. It's, you know, I'm trying to, you know, you're, you're kind of in that balance of you want to win games, but you also want to teach your kids the most cutting edge stuff yep. that prepares them for yep. um, college. So yeah, that's where, that's where game you got to play. The, the, the read and react style offense is um, really developed to me where I felt like from, from the coaching experience there, certainly if your goal is to set your team up to here in Oregon, where you're again, working with um, a different range of skill set than what you would be in an MIAA program. But if you're setting yourself up to win, there's certain values and, and assets that, uh, that offense scheme, offense play, very set style can bring if your only goal is, is winning. Um, but the read and react style offense certainly poses the, the highest ceiling for player development, which is really what has pushed me towards it. And through the course of a long spring season with the right personnel, you can really grow into you know a multi threat. On the on the player on the player development yeah. side, and therefore the team development side, if you put them in those scenarios over and over and over again in practice settings, um, so that's that is why I have trended towards that in my coaching yeah, philosophy. A lot of things you can't coach for, you can't prepare them for, and it's how they react when you know we didn't prepare for this. Yeah, right. So yeah, um, interesting for sure. Let's do a do a quick. Let's say five to seven minute recruiting talk and then we'll end with some yeah yeah quick questions so um you are in the recruiting world you know being the mad Lax organ director i'm sure recruiting um talks with families and kids is yep. a daily occurrence for you um you dealing with college coaches is a daily occurrence for you and talking to kids and talking about kids is something that um you might not have think, thought you were going to be doing five six years ago yeah now, totally. now it's like you know a large portion of your role at mad Lax. Um, what, what is, let's talk about recruiting philosophy, but what should parents and players focus on when they start to enter, let's, let's say it's sophomore year when they're now they're coming up to the point where the college coaches can now start talking to them and, um, they're going to have to start going through the recruiting process, uh, of September one of their junior year. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I always start with for, it, in the conversation of recruiting is film. Like you got to go back to developing out for your child enough resources to leverage and lobby them on the film side. So take like Maverick Showtime, for example, like Maverick Showtime or Black Card, some of the biggest events in the country. One of the areas that our families are limited is we, we are very late to develop those resources for our children. And therefore, we're very late to develop the, the capacity to lobby and leverage those resources for the community and for the for the coaching community and the supplemental opportunity community so like i i always come back to it it's going to take families 12 months 18 months there's a massive learning curve in how you manage and execute the highlight film and updates and editing and content etc so start early and start early enough that when your kid comes into their eighth grade, ninth grade year, you have some resource that 
us as coaches can use. Now, the with the new ruling in terms of when the D- Division One and Division Two, II, Division Three community can talk to kids, the, the recruiting game has slowed down, um, and that and that. It, it helps our players. However, I still have juniors in, in the, like this year's juniors, the 2021 class that will come to me and say like, Hey, I'm really interested in going to college across. And I'll say, Hey, can you show me your film? I, I don't have any. And not only do they not have any, they don't really have any real resources to even get started. And at this point coming into your, your summer of your junior year, you better be pretty streamlined in that process where you have film already created and you have a streamlined way of updating, editing, content creation, et cetera. So you, you, that learning process that's really going to take seventh, eighth, ninth grade year um, has already been done. And you don't have to reinvent the wheel when you come to junior year and you're like, oh, I don't have anything. Because yeah. I, I, I cannot lobby and leverage for players if I don't have that resource available to me. So I, I was working, I won't say who exactly, but... Um not that long ago, uh, maybe a year and a half ago, I was working with a, a player who was in their sophomore year and went through his sophomore season, but already had this back stock of film and we had all our games filmed and he was starting to every game he'd go through and say like, I want this highlight. I want this highlight. I want this yep. highlight in my, in my, uh, highlight reel, so to speak of, of my sophomore year. And this was a kid that went from event to event to event all over the country to try to get seen and while that's you got to do that because you have to get your name out there in some fashion um what really you know accelerated his recruiting journey was how efficiently and how well and how um well put together his sophomore year highlight tape was and when we sent it out uh, it was after september one of his uh junior year but when we sent it out despite him going to all these recruiting events, I mean, we got, we got two calls like that day, yeah. just, just, just seeing his film. Yeah. And then it's now, now it's in my hands to talk about him and say what he brings to the table and et cetera. And man, he was committed like three weeks later yeah. to that school that he went and visited all because of his highlight reel. Yeah. And you can go back and be like, was, were the, were the camps and all that stuff worth the money? Probably yes, because he developed as a player and he got to see what he was up against. But it really did come down to that film that we sent out. Yeah, yeah. So, like, film is always number one for me. And I, and I think doing it early enough, the, the more tenured marketplaces, the East Coast hopeds, like, those guys are filming sixth, seventh, eighth grade games. You know, every one of those games is filmed. And, you know, maybe it's a little over the top, but what the one thing that is true is there's, there's a certain, there's, preparing yourself to meet the demands that come into your sophomore, junior year. Not many college coaches are watching film of a freshman. As they get to their sophomore and junior year, you just have to be ready to roll and you can't be reinventing the wheel as you get to that time with, oh shoot, how do I get games filmed? How do I start the editing process? You know, so that's the shout out to OR Lax Recruit. Our, our good friends uh, Jerry Winter and and uh, uh, and Martin for their service that they're providing the Oregon community they do a great job. Um, that can be a resource for families to use, but but do it early enough. Like get ahead of it. Don't get behind it because if you're behind it, it's going to um, it's a challenging uphill battle. Yeah, I think also for me, just I'll add a little bit in here. It's I think it's if you're a high school coach listening to this, you have to film all your games. You have to get your games filmed by some company. I know it's a it's a big expense for a lot of high schools but it has to be a priority a not only because watching film 
shows you your where you what you need to work on and what you're doing well but also so your kids have a stockpile of film at the end of the year that you can send to them yeah um crossover is a great tool huddle is probably a great tool you have to film all your games yeah and like like legitimately film not yeah. have a dad who's shaking his shaking his hand up there no. getting very low quality and yeah, then a the, low the, Jerry Rogers of the world that are producing really really good film yeah we, we use blue chip sports or something like that they do a good job but um you know that's above above recruiting too is also the learning aspect of watching yourself playing it so much better just by yeah, watching yourself totally. play um on the, on the recruiting front, the other thing that I'll mention quickly, because yeah. I think it's an important point for our for our community, at least because we are in a being in a developing marketplace without any real Division One, with the exception of now Utah, without any Division One representation west of the Mississippi. Um, there, the event selection process is a must when you're considering because the club community is for better or for worse and I'm not going to give my opinions here for better or for worse the club community is is so enmeshed with the collegiate recruiting community that if your child isn't represented at 3 or 4 of the top summer tournaments in the country or 2 or 3 of the top fall tournaments in the country there is just no way that the coaches will build rapport enough with your with your son with the, with with their ch- with the children to for them to be confident they got to see him on the on the field and for that again it goes back to our point of what Oregon needs is a real consolidation of talent which we feel the um especially at our youth levels, our kids are going to have that opportunity, which we're extremely excited for. Our 21s did a great job last summer developing out a name for themselves and being competitive against many of the best programs in the country. But the reality of the recruiting world is is the the head coaches and the first assistants and some of the second assistants, like those are the only guys making roster decisions for the, the NCAA community. And those guys generally every weekend from June 2nd for the first weekend of June to the second to last weekend in July where the real recruiting window every weekend there's one or two big events um and those big events the the head coaches and the first assistants will be at and you got to get in front of the head coach you got to get in front of the first assistant because all of our west coast events will bring out volunteer assistants or, or coordinators or um like recruiting coordinators, uh, guys that are on staff that help have various roles, but aren't really the primary decision makers on roster decisions, recruiting decisions. And so that's the other thing that I think that I, has to be clear to families. And that's the direction that we are starting to pursue top to bottom is how, as the kids enter those years, how do we create a schedule that's manageable enough on the budget but actually gets them in all of those biggest events or not all, but at the majority of the biggest events in the country to where, again, most of the families are going to spend 75%, 80%, 90% of their bottom line time budget resources on their Oregon team. So your Oregon team has to be able to get there and has to be able to be competitive. Yeah. And that's a very important recruiting conversation that I think has gotten a little bit lost in the Oregon marketplace. Right. Okay. So get film and then really vet your options in the summer about where you want to go. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's, let's end here with a few rapid fire questions to get your thoughts. We only got about a few minutes left, but 
Um, first question, you were a three-sport athlete. Um, a, what sport were those, and what is your take on multi-sport athletes? Or yes, no, in favor? Um, how do you view it? Uh, yeah, so golf, if you call that a sport, I do. I love it. Yeah. Uh, golf, basketball, lacrosse. Um, I love the three-sport athlete. I have so many great, some of my best team memories from my high school experience were in the other sports that I played. Um, I, I played golf through my senior year i stopped basketball after my sophomore year i wasn't going to make varsity my junior year i played jv basketball for two years um and i i think there's one i I don't think specialization is good on the body so that that that's just a truism that i i i believe in um I, I don't know if there's a, there, there's no way around club being a small part of your child's yearly experience. So there's no way to really reconcile those two things that will always stand hand in hand with each other to some degree, especially if exposure and recruiting is part of your long-term goal, um, which I think for a lot of the families it is. Um, but I do think that the multi-sport athletes and the multi-sport movers are going to be the the healthiest de- the healthiest Sorry. developers of um, field sense, general sports IQ, um, and long-term healthiest on the body. So I do I do really appreciate and I do always encourage our kids like get involved. We try to we try to create our fall schedules. So that it's once a week, ninety-minute practices. They can they can stay involved in in the club sport while they're playing their football seasons, while they're playing their basketball seasons. We try to line up the schedules so the tournaments really fall towards the end of the the football soccer season before the basketball season really kicks into gear. Um, but I I would always encourage, and I will encourage my kids to play two, three sports. Yeah, I I think I think if you're what I see a lot of these days is um, kids quitting a sport they're passionate about because they think that'll get them to go to college if they specialize in this other sport. Yeah. Right. So let's, for example, let's just take a kid that plays basketball and lacrosse and he really wants to go to um, college for lacrosse. And he thinks that like, Oh, I'm only going to get there if I put the hours, the amount of hours between basketball and lacrosse all into lacrosse. Yeah. And that's, not the right mindset you know if you're passionate about the sport and it brings you joy put the stick down go grab a basketball go play basketball for the months that allow basketball you know when you're in Oregon it's winter and then come back to lacrosse I find a lot of times the kids come back better lacrosse players yeah when they put the stick down for a little bit of time yeah the other thing that I do like to talk about because I think this point has has a necessary piece in the conversation Mike's iPad's ringing All right. Yeah. So, so the other thing that I think is an important piece in the dialogue, which I do believe also to be true, and it, it stands kind of opposed to what we said, but not necessarily, is the the one thing that's true about club sports, not just club lacrosse, club you know seven on seven football, whether it's club basketball, AAU, whether it's club soccer, is there's no way that I when I watch college lacrosse, professional lacrosse right now, there's no way that I can watch the game and say the skill 
has grown hasn't grown dramatically through the course of the last 10 years in kind of conjunction with the club development because the 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 thing that seems to be true when i watch the game is just the fact that the kids get competitive level experience year round to some to whatever that degree is every family is different every player is different and the fact that the the simultaneously the the general skill of team to team player to player is increasing alongside of that there is no question in my mind that the club the club community has rapidly advanced the the overall skill of the sport and i i think that that sometimes gets lost in the shuffle of these these families saying like we don't want to specialize we you know we want multi-sport athletes or vice versa you know i I think that yes i i believe in the multi-sport athlete but i also believe that there's no way that i can't i can't look at lacrosse now and say wow look at how much club lacrosse has really developed the sport you know for better for worse wherever you fall in that it is a piece of the conversation for sure yeah all right, let's uh next question. Um what is the one thing youth slash high school players uh today aren't doing enough of besides wall ball? Ooh. Uh reading books. Reading books. <laughs> uh no, I think the um I, there's something true to be to that. I think the um they are not getting off of their their technology enough to really streamline like managing their life responsibilities as well as they could be Um, because there's just so much wasted leisure time in our youth today that goes again hand in hand with the technology and i understand it and i sympathize with it because it's a challenge for me Um, but i think that is that is true to just the general public and our youth of the the amount of wasted leisure time really cuts into the efficiencies of developing yourself as a as a well-rounded person. Yeah. And so that's what I would always encourage my my young guys to do more of, like put it away, find find a way in your life to to manage the technology efficiently so it's not running or 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 ruining the potential that you have. Yeah. Um favorite lacrosse player to watch in this day and age and why? Ooh. That's a good question because I, I I only watch I don't watch the pros or, you, you know I'll, I'll watch a handful of minutes here and there I'll watch some highlights I don't watch the pros all that much um, and today's day and age so if you're asking me about a player that like the the kids today will know the name of and will have watched um, let me think I. To me, the guy that pops in my mind, but he's not at this generation's player, is Kyle Harrison. Not like Kyle Harrison was a pioneer of the sport in terms of how he how he translated his athleticism to lacrosse. You three, know, three sport athlete, right? Three sport athlete, amazing soccer player, amazing basketball player. He was he graduated the year before I got there, so I didn't really get to share much experience with him. But I remember growing up watching him, and he was one of the he helped move the game east west in terms of how he approached the posi- the midfield position like the 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 read and react style offenses 
developed off the guys like Mikey Powell and Kyle Harrison, the guys that were dual threats to generate enough separation in tight spaces, have vision to create opportunities for teammates, but also have range to, to create quality opportunities for themselves. And I also think just in terms of a, a personality and character, like that guy has done it for years and there is only things to be looked up to from him as a, as a mentor and as a, um, a staple in the community for as long as he has been. I have not met a single person in the community that hasn't had only good things to say about Kyle Harrison as a lacrosse player and yeah. as a young man. You yeah, know, He's doing a really good job growing the sport, um, trying to create a more diverse culture in the sport. Um, you know, he's pioneering the Nations United program and all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, it's really cool to see. And man, he was one of the coolest players. He had, there was, a, when I was growing up watching in YouTube in sixth, seventh grade, there was only a handful of highlights you could watch. And he had one of them. Um, it's like his 03, 04, yep. or whatever mixtape. Um, kind of grainy now, but man, you go watch that. It's like, it was hard not to want to play like Kyle. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, anything you want to say slash talk about before we, get out of here no no thanks uh thanks for having me this is a great great new adventure for you um thrilled to have the opportunity to to converse about the subjects that are fun for us to talk about also excited to hear who's on next and who you got coming into the pipeline and other coaches philosophies ideas around the subject of the greater lacrosse community in oregon yeah no it's it's been fun it's been quite an adventure for me and um the first couple guests i was obviously very pleased with but um so all those out there, follow our Instagram page um, at Oregon Lacrosse Podcast. It's pretty much the only way we promote it. Um, the podcast is Spotify, Anchor first. Um, you'll can listen to it um, a few days after on Apple and stuff like that. But um, don't really know who's coming on next. But I uh, hope to get a good one, and hopefully in the next couple of weeks we'll have another episode out there. So um, thanks, Josh, for your time, and thanks. Um, see you soon. See you soon.